Generation Net Zero, a podcast created by Leading Change. Leading Change is a national nonprofit supporting emerging Canadian sustainability leaders and young professionals between the ages of 19 and 35. Thank you so much to all of you who have listened to our first episode, and let us know what you think. On episode two, we are joined by Dakota Norris, a member of the Gwich'in First Nation and coordinator for Northern and Indigenous Sustainable Energy Initiatives at the University of Saskatchewan's School of Environment and Sustainability. We chat with Dakota about how Indigenous communities are the key to decarbonization, the circular economy in the Indigenous context, and how he keeps himself inspired and motivated in the face of climate anxiety and grief. In addition to Dakota's work at the University of Saskatchewan, he is also completing his master's degree focusing on energy transitions and how Indigenous people can increase their level of ownership in energy projects. Dakota shares a lot of great advice on how collective youth action and creating connections and finding support with other young people has impacted his work. If you haven't heard our first episode, where we're joined by Meredith Adler, Executive Director of Student Energy, we recommend that you give that a listen. We hope that you enjoyed this month's episode and find some insight in Dakota's experience as a young person in this space. Yeah, so we're uh, really excited Ed, um, to have you joining us today. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's dive right in. For sure. Yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. Um, so first, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit uh, about yourself and, and how you got involved in, in the work that you do? Sure, yeah. So my name is Dakota Norris. Um, first of all, it's nice to meet you. I know we haven't had a chance to meet in person or anything prior to this. So thanks for inviting me and happy to be here. Um, I'm based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan right now. Currently, I'm in my office at the University of Saskatchewan. So I'm working as a coordinator for Northern and Indigenous Sustainable Energy Initiatives for the School of Environment and Sustainability. So it's, it's a mouthful, but basically <laughs> I'm working on recruitment and outreach and partnership building for our Master of Sustainability and Energy Security program. So I get to work a lot um, doing a lot of connections and stuff with people up north because that's obviously the target audience, although it's we also recruit across Canada internationally. So I'm part time with this position and really enjoying it. And I'm also doing a Master's of Environment and Sustainability with the same school. So obviously learning a lot about environment sustainability, but I'm mainly focusing on energy transitions and particularly how Indigenous peoples can increase their level of ownership in energy transitions. Um, so I'll be doing research with my home community, hopefully uh, the Gwich'in. I'm originally from Inuvik Northwest Territories, uh, mm. homeland of the Gwich'in First Nation. Um, but I've been in Saskatoon for quite some time and at the university here, I did my uh, undergrad in, in commerce. And uh, yeah, so that's a bit about me kind of professionally. I'm also on the side doing a fellowship with the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. They're based out of the US and basically trying to look at a specific case of the Te'irawera rainforest, if I pronounce that correctly, New Zealand was recently or sort of recently granted legal personhood. So I'm trying to figure oh, out wow. how that contributes to uh, catastrophic risks for humanity. 
So very mm-hmm. excited to also be doing that. Um, and how I got into this work, like I said, I did my undergrad in business and I kind of had no idea what I wanted to do, but I've always been a bit of a do-gooder, like trying to get involved in various things. I've always been interested in climate change and you know indigenous development and stuff. And right when I was finishing my degree, I went to a conference where I was presenting some of my work and I ran into someone from Youth Climate Lab, uh, Dominique Sori, I'm sure you know yep, her. Yep. And mm-hmm. we, we got to talking and she said they were starting a new program with Gwich'in Youth and they needed a project manager. And I said, well, I'm Gwich'in, I'm at this Gwich'in conference and I just graduated with a management degree. So. Uh, it was just a lot of luck, um, but also a lot of preparation, you know, as I was very interested in at the conference and all this kind of stuff. So that's how I kind of got into climate change, indigenous youth work, sustainability, all this sort of stuff. And I did that for about two years. It was a pretty intense couple of years, as you probably also know, Youth Climate Lab is, yeah. uh, they got a lot going on. <laughs> so I learned lots. <laughs> yeah. I had tons of opportunities, uh, like going to the 25th uh, UN COP conference, um, now sitting on the Sustainable Development Advisory Council for the Minister of Environment, all kinds of events and programs with First Nations leaders and youth all across Canada. So it was just a completely amazing, like kind of dream job for, for a couple of years yeah. there. To, to wrap it up quickly, I've always been also really interested in research. I wanted to do a master's. So I started trying to do that while I was working full-time at Youth Climate Lab, basically burnt out, didn't work, withdrew from yeah. the program. And then I decided to take a couple months off. That was actually just this summer. And I applied for this position at the U of S. I got the job, mentioned I was interested in research. They asked if I wanted to do a master's, to do a master's program. And same thing, it was just unbelievable luck where they said, actually, we're doing a program on energy security in partnership with the Gwich'in. It'd be perfect to work here wow. and to do research here. So here I am. Um, and that's kind of how I got into this. I guess a lot of luck, a lot of interest and through my work in school and stuff. Yeah, that's a that's such a fascinating story. It's it's interesting. Uh, it reminds me of some of the conversations that I that I often have with people and um, you know, with leading change, where we're often interacting with young people, and so so we get a lot of questions about career advice and things like that. And um, and as cliche as it sounds, like I, I always have to go back to you know networking and being able to put yourself out there, right? It's when you're in school and you hear that you're like, okay, yeah, but how do I actually get a job? And you're like, no, really, like it it really does work, and um, yeah. it's something that uh, you have to learn how to be comfortable doing. So um, yeah. that's that's great to hear that it, that it worked out uh, so well for you. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, you wonder about survivorship bias, like, am I just super lucky all the time? Right. But I know, I also know, like, I have a lot of qualifications and spent a lot of time working and put myself out there a lot. So it's probably yeah. a bit of both. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there's always that uh, cliche about you have to be good to be lucky or, or something like that. So um, yeah, it all it all sort of uh, works hand in hand. Um, so that's really interesting about uh, your, your current role working at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, what's, so what's your average day of work uh, look like? Uh, t- tell me a little bit more about the research there. Yeah, so average day, it's just, it's a mix of, you know, I'll do some meetings, do a couple of classes, do a lot of planning for like engagement, marketing, outreach, that sort of stuff. And then whenever I have the spare time, I try and uh, work on my assignments and my writing and that kind of stuff. So it's usually pretty busy, um, but it all works out pretty well. You know, I've been doing this kind of work for a long time, so I found a balance and I'm very well supported by the university because I'm doing 
my research as well as my job with them. And it's with my own community and with my like strengths and interests. So although it's a lot, um, my average day is um, pretty enjoyable and very busy. Uh, the research aspect for me is really about trying to understand what is, what are the energy transitions all about? Like, why are they happening? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? Particularly from a indigenous perspective, because like my home community of the Gwich'in, the energy costs are like through the roof. Um, it's extremely expensive. A lot of reliance on bringing in diesel fuel to the community. So very expensive, very hard for like, you know, development and all these sorts of things with all the follow on impacts from that. Um, so for me, it's about, yeah, understanding why is that the case? Where can we go? What are the possibilities? And then, again, it works really well with my work because as I'm trying to do this recruitment and outreach, we, we try and find what we call like energy champions, essentially people who are really interested in participating in the energy transition. It doesn't matter what your background is or anything. It's just, or your experience. It's really about having that interest finding these people and kind of matching them with this understanding of like the complexities of this whole transition and trying to work into that because it's really hard <laughs> and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of relationship building and it takes a lot of understanding of communities because there's no one solution, right? Every community, every person has their own motivations, their own opportunities and complexities and things. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um... We, we recently had a, sort of a leadership coffee chat with, with OPG um, out of Ontario at the, at the Globe uh, Energy and Transportation Days, and, and they recently released their Reconciliation Action Plan. And uh, so we had an opportunity to kind of dig into that a little bit uh, through that conversation. And one of the things that they mentioned was that, um, you know, when they're trying to look for where to put new projects and things like that, and they have to go out to the communities and try and work with them, uh, they're they're mentioning that you know every land really is historically indigenous land, so you have to find ways to partner with the communities there. So, um, in 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 your sort of work, uh, looking at working with the various members of the indigenous community, including your own uh, group that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the challenges or opportunities that you you think there are available for coordinating yeah. with uh, the Indigenous community um, on energy transition? Yeah, well, I think the challenge, one of the main challenges is, like I said, the complexity. In a community like in Nuvik, you might, there's like the municipality, like the town, uh, there's the territorial government, there's the federal government, there's nonprofits, there's the tribal council, as well as there's the band for that one community of like right. a few thousand people. And they all have their own kind of like institutional frameworks, motivations, projects going on and stuff. Um, and it links into so many other complexities and challenges like energy security is related to food security. Um, energy security is related to social and economic development. So kind of understanding that it can be overwhelming and it seems like very mysterious, like when you get into these challenges, like where do I even begin? Um, and it takes a lot of work and the work part, there's a lot of people who are willing to do work. There's a lot of, you know, money floating around. There's a lot of programs like the one I'm in for training and education and stuff, 
but these communities, there's only so much capacity, right? Um, mm -hmm. For them to engage in everything all the time can be pretty challenging, especially online, right? Doing all these Zoom meetings and stuff versus being able to actually go to a community and sit down and get to know people and, and everything they're working on and stuff. Yeah. That capacity, like Indigenous leaders, some chiefs might have a portfolio of, you know, they're working on economic development, mental health, youth stuff, uh, environment. And that's just like their day to day. And on top of that, they're trying to develop climate change programs. And on top of that, they're developing partnerships with universities and the government. That's not even like really a lot of times within their mandate or their like day to day job. That's them going over and right. above because they're trying to take leadership on these actions. So um, even though there's a lot of support and everybody really wants to work on this stuff, just that capacity and being able to build relations to really understand things and have a bit of reciprocity so i'm not just constantly asking like can i have some data can i uh, do you want to participate in this program can i have your input on this stuff it feels one-sided sometimes and i'm very aware of that and i have to work really hard on relations and a part of that is just understanding you know i'm not going to be able to connect with 100 communities every year right it's better to focus on having really good relations with a few communities to really understand what they're all about um so that's a bit I guess about my experience. Opportunity-wise, I think the, the sky is the limit. Um, we hear terms like sleeping giant or economic powerhouse or untapped potential. And I think all these things are really true and apply to Indigenous peoples as a whole in Canada. When we're talking about connecting Indigenous peoples to things like sustainable development, to things like climate change, um, the potential is just huge. And I think the main potential is in world views. So bringing in this kind of new perspective for institutions, you know, not for Indigenous peoples on how do we approach these issues on new ways of formatting, you know, our economies, our approach to how we are like relate to nature and all these sorts of things. Um, a really great example is just to like, again, this sometimes feels mysterious. Like, what does that even mean? World views? What does that even mean relations? And I don't think it necessarily has to be really mysterious. It's all about reconnecting with nature, with the land, with each other, valuing that and really acting on that uh, through our policies, through our institutions and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, easier, easier said than done. And I really like um, the, the book Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh, Robin something is the author. Robin yeah, she mentions the yeah. honorable harvest. And there's a few things that I think very succinctly capture this worldview. But something that really stands out to me is like they say, take no more than you need, uh, use everything that you take and share everything that you take. Just these simple principles, I think, are really bringing that into the rest of the world is where this opportunity lies, I think. Yeah, fantastic book. Uh, I'm literally reading it right now. So uh, yeah. yeah, very topical. Um, and that actually bridges nicely into the next question, which is, um, you know, circular economy is sort of in the zeitgeist uh, these days. Um, but of course, the concept is not necessarily new. Mm -hmm. um, but when I say the term circular economy, what does that bring to mind for you? And how do you think about it? Yeah, like you said, it's, it's a perfect bridge because, you know, I'm no expert in the circular economy in terms of all the leading edge discussions and stuff, but it is really grounded in ideas that are very old, as you mentioned, particularly when you think about like traditional societies and especially indigenous peoples, um, a circular economy, we don't necessarily have to like reinvent 
via economic system. It's about reconnecting with these ideas of community, of relationships, of reciprocity, of redistribution. Indigenous economies, although the market has always been a part of the uh, Indigenous economies for thousands of years, there's also been this aspect of reciprocity and redistribution. So we're talking about, you know, giving things away, sharing, trading, bartering, all these sorts of things. Again, you know, don't take more than you need, use everything you take, share everything you take, are very strong principles of Indigenous economies. And for me, I think we've just been disconnected from that in a lot of ways. An example for me, you know, I wanted to buy some local food and I wanted to donate some stuff this summer. So I went and I drove across town to the farmer's market, bought a cucumber, donated my shoes and went home. All, all in all, it had taken me over an hour. And I was sitting at home with my cucumber and I'm like, is this kind of silly? Like I just drove an hour for a cucumber and I gave away some old shoes that I don't know where they're going or if somebody's actually going to use yeah. them or what's going to happen with them. So it can feel like disconnected and it doesn't, it feels like our systems aren't set up for relations, for community, for reciprocity, for distribution. And that's where I think, again, bringing in these kind of worldviews, these old ideas um, is very important. And there's people like Aaron Andrews from Impact Zero who are leading these kinds of things. There's policies, people advocating for things like, you know, the right to repair and stuff that I think can really help change and like start building those reconnections. But it's just so hard sometimes, you know, we're all busy and we're all stressed. Um, sure. So I think keeping that in mind, reconnection for me is, is a really key thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And I think um, uh, you mentioned Aaron Andrews, who, who we've also spoken to uh, recently. And uh, it does seem like uh, a lot of these initiatives need to sort of find their feet at the ground level or at the local level. Uh, and, uh, and, and then we have that opportunity of uh, peer learning, right? City to city learning and things like that so that uh, we can learn from each other and, and find those best practices. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I'll just add quickly. I actually did my undergrad thesis on how e-commerce can support uh, undocumented indigenous economies. Basically, all this trading and sharing and right. stuff that happens, but but it's not like economically accounted for in markets, like through our GDP yeah. or taxes or whatever. And the key finding was that platforms are really helpful, and it actually helps uh, kind of revitalize a lot of these uh, economies. So using things like uh what whether it be a, a new website or some kind of like online trading group you see a lot of groups on like instagram uh mm -hmm. up north there's even things like people use snapchat to organize like community events where multiple communities in like a northern region will come together for kind of uh like sort of a day of trading and buying and bartering and stuff uh, so I think there's tons of opportunity there. I don't want to be kind of uh, too bleak about it. I think um, if we can utilize the tools available for us through leaders, um, like people like Aaron, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to rebuild those communities and connections. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, really like to hear uh, innovative ways of using, you know, the technology that we all kind of use on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so a lot of the time, uh, you know, working in this space, uh, there's a lot of eco-anxiety, there's a lot of, um, you know, things like that are, that are, that are kind of uh, um, top of mind, especially for young people when they're looking at what does the future look like for me? Um, what is it going to mean to bring a family into this world? 
um, in the future, and then that causes people uh, a lot of concern and anxiety. So, um, how do you how do you think about that? How do you deal with that? And also, um, how do you stay motivated uh, and inspired in your work? Yeah, I think I think it may be a very aspirational level. Um, I've I am trying to learn about these worldviews myself about, you know, really valuing like not just humans, but non-humans and nature for itself, like intrinsically and mm. trying to think about like, what does a connection even mean? What does that look like in my life and stuff? Um, it just helps me feel like I am more connected to a lot of these challenges and a lot of these um, like nature and, and non-human animals and stuff. And in that connection and in that value, I find there's almost like, a mental kind of easing where it's like no longer is it just I'm sitting at my computer doing a million calls and trying to do research that who knows if anyone's ever going to read to reduce you know carbon emissions on some accounting metric somewhere it could be pretty right. bleak but kind of seeing these connections and trying to like really value things it's like oh I'm doing this for this like the Tahir where rainforest I'm writing research about it and hopefully I bring in this new perspective where people understand what it means to value nature for its own sake and to protect that and what are the benefits of that and stuff and it just feels like a lot a lot more connected and a lot more hopeful and a lot more real versus just you know thinking at the level of numbers or like abstract research and stuff um, yeah. Yeah. it's kind of more motivational I guess but another more grounded or like real thing for me is like to also manage, I guess, day-to-day -day like uh, burnout and stress and all these sorts of things, health issues and stuff, because that kind of seeps into a lot of stuff. I think I kind of got burnt out just from overworking, not really taking care of my health, taking on too many things and stuff. And I had a pretty like, pretty negative attitude towards a lot of stuff where it was like, is what am I, I'm doing really helpful. Why am I doing this? This is not sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. But once I was able to like address some of those things, which included like taking the time to actually go speak to doctors, uh, leaving my job at YCL, which was really hard, but I think I needed that break, um, finding more supportive environments. Like I switched my master's program. It was kind of like hard to make those big decisions, like dropping out of something. There's a bit of like, um, yeah sense of like failure or something I don't know but I found a better master's program here at the university which is more local more connected with my home communities there's more funding all these kinds of things um, and through all these things I now feel super hopeful and mundane tasks like writing emails and stuff seem like they matter now versus like before where it just seemed like pretty like why like what is this all added to kind of a thing so don't ignore I think the underlying uh health and stuff as well yeah that's a big one uh i think uh and it's it's nice to see at least uh from my point of view that our, our society as a whole is starting to and I, I say really just starting to kind of recognize um how important it is to take care of your mental health so um, really good to hear uh that um that it had a positive aspect on you being able to reevaluate and take some time and um, I feel like uh, for young people these days, there's a lot of pressure uh, to succeed and, um, you know, to do everything. Um, mm -hmm. But really, uh, yeah, I think people have to, to take a step back sometimes uh, yeah. and take that time for themselves. For sure. 
And I, I just want to highlight as well, like, um, although that is super important, you should always start there. Sometimes, like when I was in that situation where I was kind of overwhelmed and stuff, it felt silly, like, go take a walk on your break or like meditate in the morning or something. It's like, that's not the problem. The problem is like, I'm super overwhelmed with all this stuff and I don't know how to deal with it. And sometimes it does take those big changes, like changing which school you're going to, um, who you're interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis, taking a long extended break to like deal with underlying health issues and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah. it's not just uh, simple advice, start there for sure. But sometimes you need like more kind of environmental changes as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's great advice. Uh, so looking uh, looking at the future, and uh, I know you just kind of started um, this new role at the, the University of Saskatchewan, but how do you see, uh, you know, the kind of work that you're going to be doing going forward, um, looking at the future of sustainability in Canada? Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I'm just in the first year of this master's, so I'll be here most likely for the next uh, probably year and a half, you know, writing up my thesis on Indigenous ownership in the energy transition. So that'll obviously be a lot of work and a lot of time doing that. I don't know exactly where I want to end up afterwards, but I'm just getting really, really excited about this idea of how can Indigenous worldviews be brought into these mainstream kind of global challenges like sustainability, climate change, global catastrophic risks, which can include other, other risks as well, like risks from developing technologies and stuff. Um, like how does indigenous rights increase our, you know, security as like a human civilization, <laughs> like adapt adaptability, resilience through, you know, do indigenous rights lead to more energy security, food security, water security, diversity in like culture, uh, better management of lands, all these sort of things. There's a lot of research and a lot of people advocating for that. Um, I feel like, once again, a lot of it seems mysterious, like how does this all link together? So basically that's what I wanna work on is like creating in my own head, what is the real clear connection between the worldviews and all these challenges? And obviously that can go a lot of different ways. Uh, I enjoy research, I'll probably continue doing research, whether that be like a PhD or just for fun on the side through like these fellowships and stuff, I don't know. Or whether that be through working back in, you know, with some cool youth organization or something. I don't exactly know. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and sort of following up with that, um, uh, some of the conversations I have with young people, it's it's about access and about how do, how do young people get a seat at the table in, in some of these uh, conversations um, that involve, you know, the levers of power. So how do you think about that, um, both as a young person and also as a member of the indigenous community? Yeah. Um, I have a lot to say about that, like uh, <laughs> from many different perspectives. I'll try to keep it short. For me, as, as I said, you know, a lot of it is just applying for things, asking for things, et cetera. It seems to work pretty well, but there's probably a significant component of like luck there. But these things, these things kind of like build on top of each other, right? Once I was at Youth Climate Lab, and then I also did a fellowship uh, through Action Canada on public policy, and I got references from both those organizations to apply for the Sustainable Development Advisory Council, where I can now provide input on Canada's environment plans, which is right. amazing, like an amazing opportunity. And I think that came from these references, which came from these organizations with both of them I applied for. And then I applied for both of those things with the encouragement of like my personal mentors and stuff, where otherwise I might not have. So I guess some of the key components there are 
having a supportive environment of mentors and stuff will encourage you to do things and highlight opportunities for you. I think finding those mentors and those opportunities comes through doing things like fellowships. Youth Climate Lab has lots. Going to Leading Change, the conference, and just mm -hmm. uh, connecting in any way is a huge, amazing way to connect with other like-minded people and opportunities. Stuff like Student Energy has fellowships. Action Canada has a fellowship. All these sort of things. Um, so having a network of mentors, applying for things, and then using those things to get you into even more opportunities like going to COP, for example, with Youth Climate Lab, et cetera. That said, uh, the caveat is that it's not always so simple. I've been at things where, you know, a minister will ask a handful of Indigenous youth, can I have your input on this thing, uh, this idea or this plan? But there's no context, there's no time given. They don't really hear what the youth are saying. They don't provide like a safe environment. And it's just awful, <laughs> just terrible, terrible. And it leaves everybody not feeling better about it. Like the Indigenous youth were kind of like disgruntled and like, what was that all about? We weren't hurt at all. Yeah. And the minister was like, well, that wasn't helpful for me at all. And that kind of went not at all like I planned. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's a lot of these seat at the table things require a lot of forethought and a lot of planning, which often doesn't happen. The youth have to push for that themselves. And that looks like before I commit to giving you my input or sitting on this seat that you're granting me, what exactly do you expect from me? How much time are you giving me to do it? What supports are you giving me? Like if somebody's never been in some crazy like institutional environment, like a federal government meeting or some international negotiation or something, and you just throw some youth in there with no expectations at all. It's super yeah. overwhelming. And it's like, where do, where do you even start, right? So you need to have clear guidelines, you have clear supports, you need to know what you're getting into, you need to know how that input is going to actually be acted on. Like you can't just leave a meeting or a table and have no idea what's happening with this input. Like whoever it is, whether it's a minister or somebody collecting data or something, they have to specifically say like, this is how we're going to follow up with this. And even if it doesn't lead to like a specific action or change, we'll tell you why not. And we'll report back uh, and maybe provide follow-up opportunities or something. Uh, so there just has to be a lot of the process has to be a process. It can't just be, hey, do you want to show up and talk to this minister about something? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting and, and probably not something that um, a lot of people have on top of mind when they're when they're thinking about this uh, this issue. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate that concept, especially you know having in mind that if you if you're not used to these sort of environments. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're kind of thrown to the wolves and expected to contribute, then it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty overwhelming, as you said. Yeah. So yeah, that's definitely important. And um, it sort of reaffirms to me that the one of the, the really core values that we need to uh, stress when it comes to sustainability issues is transparency. Because mm -hmm. um, I think we're seeing the same thing when it comes to the investment space with ESG initiatives and things like that, because the transparency isn't always there. Uh, you know, you're not entirely sure what you're investing in and, um, mm -hmm. and whether or not it's, it's a greenwashing situation, things like that. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's some, some important context, I think, for that issue. For sure. um, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned a, a few young people uh, that we're familiar with at, at Leading Change, including Dominique and, uh, and Aaron Andrews. So um, what have you learned from, from some young people who are working in the industry? And, um, and how do you think about the energy that young people can bring? Yeah, I think um, for me, what I learned about 
once again comes to like connections and not working in silos and the value of having input like from youth or other groups that aren't like isn't just research or policymakers or decision makers or anything. This is another thing where it can seem mysterious where it's like what what are youth going to be providing when it comes to like climate change policies like what is, what is their input or uh, just in general, like what is the role of youth in these discussions and how is that going to be acted on and stuff can be a little mysterious. For me, my first experience working closely with youth was through Youth Climate Lab, through the Future Exchange Project. We brought together Gwich'in youth with youth from all across Canada and like Toronto, Winnipeg, et cetera, for about a week to discuss climate change from their different perspectives and how they can act on it. Prior to this, I was working very individually. I did research and I did a lot of stuff and I was interested in these issues, but all through my undergrad, I had this idea of like individualisticness, competitiveness, where I'm trying to like, oh, if I want to work, work in climate change, I need to have really solid ideas, which is based on a lot of research and having strong qualifications right. and all this stuff. And I don't really see like the whole value of youth, but I'll come and like see what it's all about. So at this conference, it was like very emotional and very like connecting and very eye-opening. And I just realized like, I'm not alone, you know, like mm -hmm. as a youth, I'm not like some guy sitting in a library or trying to get degrees or whatever, trying to get a job at, you know, the Ministry of Environment or something. No, I'm, there's like this whole movement of people who share the same ideas, who have the same challenges, who are thinking about the same things, who wanna work on the same things and connecting with them makes you realize like, it's just, you're, it's not you against the world, right? Like there's this whole movement and that's where the motivation and the energy and the ideas for what's possible kind of come from. And I don't know why I was just stuck in this idea of the like the individual you know and like i need to try so hard to get a seat at the table and then i realized like no our power is in our connections with each other and our voice that we have together kind of a thing and so many other ideas like think instead of just thinking about research or climate change in terms of like emissions and stuff you start to realize by talking to people who are impacted by it on the ground like it's about a lot more, you know, so it's about justice, it's about equity, and you start to realize that's not just a footnote of the conversation, that like, that is the conversation. Um, yeah, so give it a chance, I would say, uh, yeah. connect with youth, connect with uh, any community you can, really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, love hearing that answer. That's certainly what we're trying to do here at Leading Change is connect young people across the country and uh, you know, give them a community of people that they can connect, be connected with and, and work on initiatives together. So uh, mm -hmm. it's, it takes all hands. Uh, my mom is always fond of saying many hands make light work. So yeah. uh, it's something that I've, I've taken to heart and, and, yeah. and, and think about often. So um, mindful of your time, this, I got one more question for you, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, and that's what's one piece of advice that you have for other young people who are interested in working in the sustainability space, um, and in particular, those who are coming from historically uh, marginalized communities. Yeah, I think the advice relates to what I just said about my own story of trying so hard to like be something in the sustainability field through qualifications and what I thought was like needed, which is tons of expertise, tons of knowledge, tons of qualifications before you could even begin working on issues. That's just kind of how I thought about it because I wasn't exposed to all the other leaders and champions and ideas and projects that exist beyond just you know, government policies and top research institutes and stuff. Um, so the advice, like I heard a quote recently 
only do what only you can do. And, you know, through my fellowship at the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute, for example, I was proposing all these research ideas and I kept saying, like, should I go do a master's in economics? Should I learn more about statistics? Should I learn more about psychology and stuff? Because I was trying to use these tools to think through issues of, you know, large risky humanity. And the advice I got was basically like, you can just hire someone to run the statistics for you. You have all this experience on the ground. You're an indigenous person. You have all these interests and motivations and ideas. Like do that. <laughs> Don't worry about all these qualifications and stuff. Nobody else is bringing these ideas in. And that's why it's very important. Like you don't need to worry about all the other stuff, you know? And I think it can be very, uh, like a lot of burnout and a lot of this stress and stuff can come from this idea of, you know, if I want to work in the field, I need all these things, but really just think about like, you have a very unique perspective, very unique lived experience. You probably already have all kinds of challenges in your day-to-day -day life and opportunities that you see and ideas that you care about. Use those and like bring those to the table. And, um, you know, for example, apply to leading change and go there and just start talking about the issues your community is having or what you want to do, like the conference uh, of leading change. Apply to one of these fellowships and bring a project idea from your community. Like, don't worry about paying a bunch of money and grinding yourself 24-7 to be something that you don't need to be, right? Um, not that there's anything wrong with, like, pursuing prestigious things and stuff. That works for a lot of people and it can help amplify your voice but there's no need to force that when you already have like so much to contribute really yeah that's that's fantastic advice uh thank you very much for that question and thank you for your time as well um it's been a really enjoyable conversation and uh i really valued uh, hearing your answers to to our questions so uh be sure to stay connected and uh yeah thanks again Dakota. absolutely really grateful to be here thanks for the invitation and i hope uh hope this helps thank you if you would like to connect with Dakota, you can reach out to him on LinkedIn. We hope that you enjoyed the episode. We'll be releasing a new episode each month with more conversations with young people. We really hope that it makes you feel a little less alone in the fight for a more sustainable future. And we hope that it inspires you to keep doing the work that you're doing. You can find us on social media at LeadingChangeCA everywhere if you want to let us know about what you thought or you can follow us to find out when we'll release the next episode. You can also learn more about Leading Change at leadingchangecanada.com. And feel free to drop us a comment or question if you have any feedback. Till next time.